This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in May of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Are you paranoid about the ums and uhs that pepper your presentations? Concerned that people notice your vocal fry? Bewildered by Hella, the meteoric rise of so? What if these features of our speech weren't a sign of cultural and linguistic degeneration, but rather some of the most dynamic and revolutionary tools at our disposal? In her book, Like Literally Dude, linguist Valerie Friedland says that language is both function and fashion, and that though we often blame the young, the female, and the uneducated for its downfall, we should actually thank them for their linguistic ingenuity. Valerie Friedland is a professor of linguistics in the English department at University of Nevada, Reno. She writes a popular language blog on Psychology Today called Language in the Wild and is also a professor for the Great Courses series. Valerie Friedland, uh, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be here. Good to have you on. Uh, uh, wonderful book. Uh, I love language, uh, so fun for me, uh, I think for our, our listeners as well. Um, I was interested to, I was going to ask you anyway, but you, you gave me a little, uh, I guess, primer in your introduction, um, how you got into linguistics. Uh, tell me, first of all, about your parents and growing up. Uh, yes, well, my parents are native French speakers, so they moved to this country when my father uh, took a job at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, so... I grew up in the South with a very different background than most of my peers, and I noticed very, very early on that people reacted to my parents in ways that were surprising to me because of their accent. So they were kind of exotic, they were new, and and generally because French is a favored language, they were treated quite well, but still as these sort of animals in a zoo. (laughs) And as a a child in a Southern-speaking area, who didn't speak with a Southern dialect and, in fact, had some substrate influence from French on my language, on my speech, I noticed that kids reacted to me, and usually not as positively if I mess things up because, you know, in kindergarten people don't really think you're exotic when you say huge and human without the aspiration of huge and human. So it really got me thinking about how language is not just a way we communicate information, but also very socially relevant to who we are and what we think of people. And of course, I was, you know, five or six. I didn't think of it that way. I just thought, dang, this is mean. (laughs) (laughs) And that propelled me, though, as I got older to try to figure out why we react to language that way. And so I went to Georgetown and I studied linguistics. And that was pretty much the start of, of this path I'm on. Uh, I guess before you got into linguistics, you were, were you were trying to study Chinese, trying to learn Chinese? I was. My original, ma- my original major was languages, and I, I picked Chinese, mainly because I thought it sounded kind of cool and impressive. Um, but unfortunately, because I had developed a bit of a Southern accent, the tone system of Chinese and my intonation pattern as a Southern speaker did not get along very well. And my Chinese drill master told me I sounded like I sang Chinese opera. So that was really when I decided maybe linguistics was a better choice. <laughs> and it wasn't a compliment, I take it. <laughs> I, I don't think it was. Yeah. I don't think it was. I, I think it was a nice way of saying, you know, you might want to reconsider your major. Yeah. So you, you, uh, you discovered a course called, I think it was called Language and Gender. Tell me about that. That was, that was key. It really was. I had taken a couple of just basic linguistics courses because obviously linguistics is really about the science of language. So you have to know things like phonetics, phonology, syntax, morphology, all those big words that are kind of uh, scary to a sophomore. 
But I also enrolled in a class, and I think it was actually called Language and Society, and it covered language and gender. And when I took that class, all of a sudden, these, these things that I had felt in conversations that I had observed around me in the way that people reacted to different forms of speech, all of a sudden started to make sense. And, you know, I understood why I could never seem to communicate with my boyfriend in the way that I thought I was communicating. We just didn't have the same ideas about what we were supposed to talk about or whether we should ask directions and all those things. And it all of a sudden crystallized in that class because we learned about how society has different expectations for young girls and young boys and that these differences in how we're expected to behave and how we interact in elementary and middle school and high school really shape the forms of language that we end up choosing as adults. You became a sociolinguist. What's that? That is basically someone who studies the patterns and structure of language, so like a linguist, a theoretical linguist, but does it from a social perspective. So I try to figure out what are the social triggers that seem to interact with this underlying structure and these underlying pressures that cognitively and articulatorily we always have on us as speakers and how they propel language change over time. So why have we come from the language of Beowulf to the language of the Twilight Trilogy? Something obviously inspired changes to occur at certain times and places, and those are usually social triggers, and we underestimate the value of society and social forces in changing and shaping our language over time. See, right, um, this resonates. You know, I, I, uh, I rub shoulders with a lot of academics. Um, you say for a time you were content to write books that would be read by 50 other academics. Um, but at a certain point you wanted to, I guess, to reach out, I guess, I guess to, to us, right? To, what was that trigger? Well, you know, yes, I've written a lot of academic articles that, other than being really good bedtime reading for people that are not in academics, because it will put you right to sleep, <laughs> no one really reads that outside of the field because I studied bowel movements. And let me just be clear, clear here, bowel with a V. I'm not that other kind of doctor. Um, and so I, I decided, though, as I was giving talks and noticing the things that people were asking me about, so I'd go out and I'd talk about various parts of language change that I studied as a linguist, and I would find that people would be really interested in that, but they'd come up afterwards and they'd ask me questions about why their kids say like all the time or what's up with people calling everybody dude or bra. They'd ask me questions about the language they heard and noticed around them, and I don't think that we were really giving them the tools and linguistics to understand those forms and why they come about from the perspective of language science and history. And that just propelled me to start percolating this idea of a book that was not written for academics, but a book that took what we knew from all our research and from studying history of language evolution and put it in a framework of the features that were happening today, the things that we noticed, the vocal fry, the likes, the ums, all those things that make us paranoid in our speech or with our children's speech. And what if I framed language science by those features so that people could understand how what I was talking about in a theoretical way actually related to everyday speech that they used? Yeah, I do think it's very helpful. Uh, by the way, that, that list of things, you know, people talk to you about your their vocal fry and uh, and their kids saying like. Uh, the one that resonated with me was a podcaster who came up and talked about how he was being criticized for overuse of the word right. That kind of resonated <laughs> with me because I, I think I do that quite a bit. I've had several podcast radio hosts say that exact same thing. And, you know, the, the thing about right is it's, essentially a um, opportunity to, uh, to invite the audience to make inferences. 
And so it's really a, an interactive tool. And I think when you're on the radio or a podcast where there's no actual audience to feed, give you feedback, that's sort of your opportunity to give the audience a chance to think about what you've just said. And so I, I think that's probably why podcasters and radio hosts tend to do it more than maybe we do in casual speech. But if you think about it as I'm inviting you to make inferences here, I'm inviting you to be participatory in this process, it's actually really a nice thing to do. But yes, people do seem to be a bit paranoid about the right usage. I'll, we'll save this portion of the program. I'll play it back if I get criticized on the right, I guess. Um, so uh, <laughs> so you, you have an example here in the introduction um, of what? Three different pronunciations of what and, and what they mean. Could you take us through that? Sure. Well, my specialty is actually, and this is one of those big linguistic words, I'm a sociophonetician, which means my true interest is how very subtle changes in the speech sounds that we make carry really impactful social meaning. And we don't tend to think of speech sounds as being very meaningful, but actually they are. And the good example is the word what. So when I'm just talking maybe to my boss or in a workplace environment or just something that's sort of semi-formal, I'd probably say what where I say the word with all the sounds, but I don't hyper-articulate it. But say, you know, I am at the computer and I'm trying to work, and my, you know, five-year-old in the back is, Mom, 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 Mom. I might say, what? Where I aspirate a little puff of air after the T, what? Because I'm irritated. And so the only difference between the first what and what is that little aspiration of the T. And that's what we call it in linguistics, an aspiration. It's basically just a puff of air. But that puff of air has social meaning. It means, kid, I'm irritated at you. And it communicates that meaning. So your kid kind of realizes they've irritated you. They probably don't care, but they realize it. Or think about when you're talking to a friend and they tell you something that's surprising. You say, what? Where you actually glottalize the T. So you have no T anymore. It's sort of this glottal, this um, this uh, little gesture with the glottis that you make. That in, sort of tells this uh, the listener that you're really engaged, it's intimate, it's informal, and it's kind of colloquial, but colloquialism basically communicates friendliness and solidarity and, and friendship. And so these tiny little differences in your tea make a big difference in the types of, of communication that you have at your disposal when you're in a context where all you're saying is one word, yet so much meaning is communicated by that one little sound. If you just joined us, we're talking with Valerie Friedland, um, and her book is, like literally, dude, the subtitle, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. I just want to quote you here, Valerie Friedland. You say that, um, there I went, Um, uh, we'll talk about that a little (laughs) later, Uh, that our linguistic elasticity takes a serious hit as we age. Um, And you note that uh, the more educated, financially well-off we are, the greater our linguistic rigidity uh, and then you go on to say, it's the very fact that we think of ourselves as serving as some kind of role model that gives rise to our linguistic curmudgeonness. And, and you you say this in the backdrop of, we are the beneficiaries of centuries of linguistic change. That's absolutely right. I don't think we realize how much of what we say today was considered vulgar and uncouth even one or two centuries ago. A perfect example of something we never think of is our progressive or our passive progressive. So if you say something like, um, he is going or the house is being built. Well, in the 19th century, both of those were considered colloquial and rather vulgar, and they were really reserved for only informal speech and usually among intimates. Um, And 
gradually, though, because they were used among intimates and they were used in things that made us feel good, these contexts that we we bond together and we create solidarity together, they spread out to become things we all say. Uh, actually, in the 19th century, instead of saying something like the house is being built, you would have said the house is building, which, of course, sounds really bizarre to us today, but that was standard. The house is being built was considered vulgar. Or another great example is the way we don't aspirate our H's at the beginning of words anymore in American English. So words like white or whip would have been um, 100 years ago quite Whip. And in fact, Noah Webster called us lazy and careless and critiqued us as vulgar for saying that. So these things evolve and they become the norms by which we judge people's speech today. And if they are lacking things because they change them in ways we haven't used. So, for example, if we say must and our kids say gotta, we might think that's vulgar but or rude or colloquial or not good. But hardly any of us actually say must anymore. Most older speakers would say have to. So um, it's just a continuing path of change that our teenagers are pushing along. And I don't think we realize how much our language has changed over the last thousand years. And I think if you go back and read Beowulf, you'll be quickly reminded that you don't understand anything in Old English. And even Shakespeare is tough. And in fact, the last 300 years have brought us less change than the previous six or 700. So we're, we're kind of trying to hold back the tide of something that has always pushed forward in our language. Why the, I want to follow up immediately on that. Why less change over that period? Well, the less change has actually been because of this push and rise of prescriptivism. So mm. this idea that there's a good and bad form of English is really relatively recent. I think we think always that's been part of our language, but it's an 18th century invention. And what happened is there was a loosening of class boundaries in the 1600s and 1700s with much more migration to London, which had become the cultural capital uh, in that period from dialects like Scots and dialects from northern Britain, British speakers that were not really well respected, but they did influence the language. So the loss of R, for example, in modern British speech, um, where you say in English, English, essentially, we say things like ka or hot. That actually was a vulgar innovation brought because of this mass migration and this loosening of class boundaries. So as you start having more class mixing, one of the things that set apart the lower classes from the upper classes was language, just different language norms, partially because a lot of immigrants were made up the lower classes, immigrants from other parts of Britain as well as outside, and because of just class distance. It had evolved, the language had evolved in slightly different ways. So if you wanted to preserve your place at the top of the heap, one good way to do that was to codify the norms of your speech, make those the norms by which others would be judged, and that established you as the authority and the powerful one. And so if you look at early prescriptivism like Robert Loaf, Lindley Murray, um, and dictionary makers like Samuel Johnson, they were drawn from the upper crust and, upper crust and essentially used their own norms to write these grammars. And once you start codifying things and standardizing it, which language English didn't have prior to that, English was only a, a spoken language essentially, uh, then you start to slow down the rate of change because you tie it to written forms and those written forms exert strong stabilizing pressure on the changes in the language. And since we really didn't write English up until about 1700, 1600, extensively for widespread literacy, we didn't have that kind of pressure exerted in previous centuries. 
So it's my sense you can, I guess you can slow it down by being prescriptive, but you can't stop language change. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't stop it. You can slow it down. And it still will come because new needs arise, new speakers are born, and the social soup that is middle and high school will never go away. In fact, it's intensified, and that's really where change tends to get uh, formulated and concocted and come and innovations are are um, emergent now I will admit um, you know I fall into that prescriptive mode every once in a while uh, one example used to be mentor protege now it's mentor mentee drives me crazy but I, I tell myself it shouldn't drive me crazy <laughs> yes that's a good attitude to have you know it's funny in the in the time I've been doing this I have found out so many pet peeves that have surprised me. People will get upset over all sorts of different things, and there's really no way to appease everybody's pet peeves. Uh, there are some on which we seem to all agree, and that's things like life using literally, not literally. But there are all little examples like that. Someone wrote me the other day t- telling me that their pet peeve is when people say personal belongings rather than simply belonging. <laughs> so there, there are all sorts of things that bug us, and we can't possibly meet the needs of everybody who decides, I don't like this. But the reality is prescriptivism is one view of language, but it's not the only view. And I'm not saying that prescriptivism should never be useful. In fact, you know, in formal context, in writing, prescriptivism has value. But in everyday speech, I think we forget that prescriptivism is not meant to control our conversations because we do so much more with language than simply communicate, here's a set of information and this is what I need to encode. We communicate our relationships. We communicate our intentions. We communicate the way that what I just said was related to what I said previously, which is what a lot of discourse markers that people don't like do. And all of this is social information that's vital to having healthy communication. And if we start to strip all that away because this person or that person doesn't like it, we are really going to lose on the communicative front. And I I think the key is to realize that I can dislike things. There's nothing wrong with that. I dislike many food groups, but that doesn't mean those food groups are bad. They just mean that's not for me. And disliked and bad are very, very different. And I think that's where we need to move away from thinking of these features as bad speech, because they're actually, from an evolutionary perspective, not bad at all. Um, and they're just disliked features. Uh, just one more example from from me. I don't want to you know, impose my preferences here, but um, and this one I, uh, I guess kind of irritates me, but I, but it's more of a kind of a dispassionate uh, scientific observer. I'm noticing that we're losing the us from versus. So this versus that. I'm hearing more and more younger people saying this versus that. Well, that's a process that tends to happen in fast speech. If you look at many, many of the things that start to annoy us, it's because in spoken English, when we're trying to maximize our message with a minimum of time and effort, which is the goal of conversational speech, you don't want to spend hours where you could spend minutes. It is the natural tendency of language to assimilate. So this is why you get things like jeet yet for did you eat yet? The, the key to remember is we're not trying, when we're in conversation with each other, we're not trying to hyper-articulate every sound we make. What we're trying to do is make sure our message is communicated. And a lot of times we do that, and we're trying to be effective and efficient from an articulatory perspective, which means that we're going to have natural assimilatory processes happen, which is the same thing that we don't notice, but we do when we say things like miss, 
plus you, if you say those two together, you actually assimilate those sounds and make it a sh sound instead of an S plus a Y. So instead of miss you, it becomes miss you. And that is an assimilatory process, much like the one you're talking about, but we simply don't notice that one and we notice the other one. And that's sort of what happens. We all assimilate our sounds when we talk, but we just notice the ones that stand out to us because we might not do them. Let's take a break, our first break here. Um, we're talking with Valerie Friedland. Her book is Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. We'll be back uh, with more with Valerie Friedland following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking with Valerie Friedland. She's a professor of linguistics at, in the English Department at the University of Nevada, Reno. She writes the popular language blog on Psychology Today called Language in the Wild and is a professor for the Great Courses series. Her new book is Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in uh, Bad English. I want to get into some specific examples. Uh, first, uh, just a little bit more on this um, uh well, I'll just read this sentence. It kind of illustrates uh, how uh, sometimes as prescriptivists, uh, you know, we just kind of sound ridiculous. So, according from the book, nowadays, do you say it is I instead of it's me? <laughs> and if so, do your friends bow or curtsy out of deference for your royal ways? <laughs> so, I think sometimes we do that, right? It just, com- <laughs> it, it just comes off weird, right? <clears throat> it does. A little formal. Yeah, yeah, a little too formal. Or um, Arctic versus Arctic. And you want to say that uh, sometimes our notion of what's correct is maybe not even accurate. Maybe Arctic is accurate. Yes, actually, Arctic is accurate. And that K sound, which we write as a C, got brought back in at a period where we thought we wanted to elevate English to make it sound a little more like classical languages. So in the Greek root, it has a K sound. So it was actually reintroduced into the spelling, not in the speaking, but in the spelling version of the word to make it sound a little more learned. And then people saw it spelled that way and started to think there should be a K, much like the G on our ING. We see it written that way and we think there's a G there when actually historically there's not. And that also is a spelling pronunciation. So it's sort of funny that then we get upset with people for not having the K sound uh, when that actually wasn't even original. It was a mispronunciation based on the spelling. Uh, so you say that uh, women and children are are often the innovators. Uh, that maybe we shouldn't make fun of legally blonde. We should we should thank uh, you know young women for for their in- inventions. Tell me more about this. Absolutely, Reese Witherspoon is a great example of that. You know these these characters we often have as these vacuous, silly, empty-headed women and uh, young women in particular are often driven by the fact that we have long-standing bias against women's voices in many, many spheres. So it's sort of this underlying notion about where women's voices belong. And then you couple that with the fact that women have historically and in contemporary speech tended to be the linguistic innovators. So they introduce new features into our speech at a higher rate. And then if so, if you get a group that tends to be a little bit disfavored socially anyway, and then they're doing something new that makes them stand out, generally we're not going to react to those new things very favorably. And that seems to be what happens with language. But what we find over and over again when we look at studies on linguistic variation and where they start, and this is both in modern speech and also as far back as the early modern period where we could study a lot of letters and diaries, we find that it is young speakers 
and young women in particular that seem to be the leaders of linguistic change. And this is, these include things like the change from verbs like has and, and does to has and does. Um, also, the use of my and thy over mine and thine. So you used to say mine, I, and, but now we say my eyes, both of which are changes that have happened in that period. So these old forms are led by women. We found that in higher rates in their letters from this period. But modern English, the change from will to saying going to, the change from saying must to have to or got, got to, uh, the switch in using um as a discourse marker. Uh, all of these things are actually changes led by women, as was that earlier change I mentioned with progressive ing. We find that in the early in the 19th century, at much more higher rate, at much higher rates in women's letters, that suggests they led that change as well. So it's a recurrent pattern that we find um, from you know centuries ago to modern English. We have a caller, uh, Carl in St. George. Uh, Carl, thanks for calling. Go ahead with your question. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, you just mentioned a word that I think has got more color in than a lot of words we use. We we tend to say, I hate this or I don't like that. But you used a word called irritate. We don't yeah. hear that very often, but I think it's a wonderful word. But my mother was an English teacher and a Shakespearean teacher, so I appreciate wonderful, well-spoken English. And I actually heard this uh, on a radio program. Quote, I should have went and got me something I didn't like, close quote. Now, I'd like to know what redeeming quality you get out of that kind of language. Or a fellow that was in court who had been arrested for stealing. And he was talking about the sheriff who picked him up. And the fellow said, quote, he weren't no sheriff when he done seen me do it, close quote. And today you see so much or you hear so much of the following. I go, I go to school and when I got there, the principal talked to me and he goes, why are you late? And I go, well, I missed the bus. And he goes, and she's like. I don't know what I'm going to do today. And he, she's, she's like this, and she's like, I go, he go. What redeeming quality of English is that today, or is that modern English? Thanks, Carl. Uh, some, some great examples. Professor Freeland? Yes, that, that, those were great examples and a lot of different ones. But let me, let me address a couple different points. So first, you know, you said your mother was an English teacher and a Shakespearean. So the, the funny thing is we look back to Shakespeare as this uh, language and the English god who did wonderful things for literature and for, for writing as well as for language. But at, in his own time, Shakespeare was considered a bit body, and he was an incredible linguistic innovator. He's credited with thousands of words. He probably didn't invent all of them, but he was the first to write them, as well as making new compounds, of combining different parts of words together, of doing words that hadn't really been referenced in any other literary um, sources prior to that, uh, and as well as, as really embracing the novelty and the raising up of English out of being vernacular to being a learned language by creating these novel words. So it's funny that we think of him as this sort of, staid and classic 
writer when actually he wasn't. He was very innovative. So all the things that you're criticizing in young people today are exactly the types of things that Shakespeare did. But history gives us great hindsight, and we start to appreciate things that we don't appreciate in the moment. So second thing is about those different features. And what, again, I want to stress is is none of those that you mentioned were bad. Uh, All of them were substitutions for other words that are more prescriptively accepted. But, for example, your first example had a switch from the past participle gone for went. There, it's a one-to-one substitution, uh, and both gone and went are what we call suppletive forms, meaning they were borrowed in and stuck in a paradigm that they didn't belong in back in Old English. So they come from very different roots, and they were sort of a hodgepodge from different dialects that got put together. So if you want to go for what's correct, neither of them actually is correct in the historical view of what was the originating word. But there are one-to-one substitutions, so what you're, you're upset about in those cases is not that they don't have the same meaning. They do. They both indicate a past participle meaning, but that one is socially preferred and the other one is class-based. And so our real, our response to that is really about what we think about those speaker groups that use them rather than the feature themselves, because inherently that feature is not wrong. It communicates that same meaning. And another example that you brought up was the uh, substitution of the verb to say, with verbs like like, with quotative verbs like like, be like is a quotative verb, or go is a quotative verb. Again, it's a one-to-one substitution. We're not just throwing go or like in there willy-nilly. We're putting it in exactly the context in which the verb to say generally appeared. Now, let's think about what to say means. To say means I'm quoting something. It generally indicates a verbatim quote. If you say John said that he didn't write that book, then you're, you're, I'm assuming that that's what John said. He didn't write the book. But if I said John was like, I didn't write that book, you don't get the same impression that it necessarily was exactly verbatim what he said. And it also suggests some sort of subjective sensibility that the verb to say doesn't communicate. So if I see me, you know, in teenage talk, I have two teenagers, so I understand their talk pretty well. If I see a cute boy and I'm a teenage girl and I, I say, oh, I was like, hello. <laughs> That doesn't mean I actually said hello. That means I was thinking hello, because the verb to to be like actually allows us to introduce something as a thinking process rather than a verbatim said process, um, which the verb to say does not quite have. And we find that when we look at how it was used over the last 30 years in writing, the verb to be like seems to come up whenever in stories we're switching narrative position. So I might say, John said whatever, and then I would switch to my own self to display my thinking process, and I was like, I don't agree with that. And so we actually find that to be like is used in first-person narration more often, and it seems to be used to help listeners understand there was a switch in narrative perspective that takes place. So my argument would be, you may not like it. It may not be what you consider a good English in the sense of a prescriptivist norm, but it certainly use that seems to serve a purpose for those that use it. And it actually adds a little additional meaning over what the thing it's replacing. And it is a one-to-one replacement. So it's not extraneous or superfluous to the context. Now, that may not make you like it anymore. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yes, Carl. Did you want to say something else? Uh, Well, obviously, this is a very educated guest you have. 
but it sounds to me like she's making the argument that there really is no good English anymore. There's no standard. In other words, you can justify anything that's said by just the evolving uh, time of of uh, the history of the world. I mean, people change, sure, but you're saying there's no real standard of excellent English anymore. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, Carl, well, uh, Ed, Ed, yeah, thanks for that. We'll let you go and have uh, have uh, uh, Professor Friedman thanks, answer Tom. that. Yeah, thank you. And that's an, uh, that's I, I, that's a, a great question from Carl. I'm sure you you get that, Professor. I do, and I, I think the the important point here is I am not saying there is no standard. I think it's fine to have standard norms in context um, in which. They are more appropriate, like writing. We definitely need standards for writing because otherwise we won't be able to communicate over long distances and over across time in the same way. We might even say it's okay to have standards when we're in certain speaking contexts where very formal English is required, like giving a presentation or being a public speaker. But I I think what's crucial is when you declare one as good and the other as bad, what you're declaring is speakers who use those forms are good and speakers who don't use those forms are bad, because that's essentially what you're saying. There is no such thing as inherent goodness or badness in a speech form, because many of the speech forms we consider good today were bad 100 years ago. So it can't be that those forms themselves are good and bad. What we have to recognize is our attitude to those forms. And I'm not actually saying that people are not allowed to have those attitudes, but I think what's important is that you recognize that they are value-loaded attitudes that you're having. And that doesn't mean those speakers that use those forms are dumb or somehow more less worthwhile or, or um, good than the speakers that use the other forms. It's simply a difference in what they've learned and what's useful to them. The other thing I think I want to make sure people understand is that when we talk about there being no prescriptive rules, that's not the same thing as saying there's no linguistic rules. Language is highly rule-governed. The rules that linguists study are the underlying rules that make language work. So, for example, you would never create a new product and decide you're going to come up with a brand name that starts with an LP because that is a disallowed, according to language rules, syllable initial onset. You can't have words in English that start with LP. That's a rule of English. That's a rule actually universally of all languages. Um, There are many different rules like that that guide how we interpret words and how we understand connections between them. So, for example, pronoun antecedents is highly rule-governed. So I'm not saying there are no rules. I'm just saying the rules that we think of as language rules are social rules, and it's fine if you want to ascribe to them, but that doesn't make them hard, fast language rules that can't be broken for additional meaning. I hope that clarifies a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Just one more thing on what Carl was saying. I it I think it is inescapable that you will be judged at least by some people uh, based on what rules you are using right and how you are speaking. We do we, we do make judgments absolutely and that, and we definitely judge people and I think what's important as I said before it's you know it's okay to have dislikes I think we all do and we're going to have different dislikes but there's a difference between saying I just like that and it's not my dialect and I don't really appreciate it in my teenage daughter or in my spouse or whatever, but saying that that is bad English. There's something wrong with that form because there generally isn't actually anything wrong with it. It's just not a socially accepted form. And so I think it's crucial to just recognize that difference. We have an email. This is, uh, I think, language is popular, especially with public radio listeners. Uh, so, Professor Vreeland, this is from John. 
John says, good morning, Tom and Professor Friedland. Uh, it's quite common for all of us to say, I've got, instead of the much more economical I have. Perhaps the professor has some thoughts on how to improve our use of this phrase. So, I've got versus I have. Uh, yes, got is really a relatively new innovation. Uh, we find it only in the last century or so that we start to see it appear. And what we see before that is have to in the previous century. But both of those are actually replacements of of must, which was considered what you know not standard. It really wasn't. They didn't have notions of standardness at the time. But up until about the 1700s, we don't really see people using have to instead of must. So it's sort of just part of this long trajectory of change in language to try to decrease the necessity that's implied by the use of the verb there. And so this is called deontic modality, to use a big linguistic word. And what it, it studies is the verbs of necessity and how we express obligation and permissibility. And what we find is as society has become less constrained, less formal, less um, governed by class structure, by ideas and hierarchies of who can do what and who has the right to say what, we've moved away from words that tend to express significant obligation on others. And must, for example, was a word that really implied strict necessity and obligation. So it was a little bit pushy, I think is the best way to say it. We see more switching to have to as class structure started to loosen up and ideas of obligation started to be more flexible. So must gave way to have to. And got to is simply the next step of that, which implies a a speaker's driven need rather than any externally imposed obligation. So this shift from must to have to to gotta is really a shift in deontic modality or these verbs of necessity being implied as an uh, external force versus an internal force. I want to talk next about um, hip new adverbs. Uh, this is something that's been going on for, for centuries, you say. Uh, I want to start with a, a video example, of, and this is a video example of prescriptivism. Um, uh, and fighting against um, the non-literal use of literally. Um, and so this is from the, uh, the, the television series Studio C from BYU-TV. Um, that, that the original cast had kind of a uh, very much an interest in language. A lot, a lot of uh, their skits had to do with language. And this is a uh, recurring character called Captain Literally. Who, who comes in and scolds people when they uh, use the non-literal use of literally. So let's hear a bit of uh, from uh, Studio C. Man, this movie is intense. I am literally glued to my seat. I know. What? What are you doing? Teaching you to be more cautious with your language, sir. Whenever someone misuses the word literally, it is my job to literalize their reality and restore balance to the universe. Now, how does it feel to be literally glued to your seat? Weird. So, uh, <laughs> Captain literally always comes and literalizes when they use the, the, the literally as a, in a non-literal sense. We, we do this all the time, don't we? The, literally, we, uh, that, that's something that's become uh, very much used. Literally all the time. Sorry, I had, had, to, had to throw that one in. <laughs> Literally all the time, yes. 
Yes, we do. It literally is part of a larger class of uh, words in English called intensifiers that are serve the purpose of boosting or emphasizing what we're going to say, often in front of either verbs or adjectives. Uh, this is a class that includes things like um, completely, absolutely, so, totally, really, very, and literally is one of the newest in this, this um, class. What we find with intensifiers is that they're one of the most rapidly evolving areas of English and have been historically. So if we look back to Old English, the intensifier of that day that was really popular was suive, which was a word that originally meant strong and then came to mean extremely. So you'd go up a suive high hill, a very high hill. Uh, the intensifier that we have, sort of the classic word there is very. And so new words like literally have come into a place very. So, you know, I'm, I'm very much starving because I'm literally starving or, or things like that. So we don't like it mainly because it's new. And I think even more because it's opposite in meaning of what we think. So if you're talking about literal as in true or real, then when you say I'm literally starving, you're not truly starving. You're just feeling as if that feeling is so intense, you're starving. And I think that's what really gets our goat about that one is it's the opposite in meaning. So two things to make people feel a little better about that. First of all, most of the intensifiers we have in English have at one point meant something different. And a lot of them originally meant true, very, uh, tr sorry, true, real, or actual. Uh, really is a great example of that. It meant real originally. Uh, very meant true, which most of us don't realize, except when we use very on the, in the form of on this very spot, on this very day, which means true or actual, not extremely. And that's the original meaning of very. But like literally, what has happened is a process called semantic bleaching, where over time, the meaning of the word moves away from being true or actual to just express the degree to which something feel true or actual, which is extreme or to a high degree. And we see this was very happening even as early as Chaucer when he says he was a um, very, a very, pro oh, sorry, not a very prophet. He was a very proper fool, which means he was a high degree <laughs> inhabiting of this fool. Uh, so it was sort of he's a true proper fool, but that true there meant degree rather than actual because he wasn't really a fool, he was just acting like one. And that's how it extends its meaning. Now, literally is doing that right now. So literally is going from meaning true or actual to meaning very extremely a high degree of something. But we're witnessing it in our lifetime, and that's what really gets our goat, because we're seeing this process, and we're still glued to its original meaning, and or, or glued to our seat, as in the example you gave. And, and this is something that perturbs us, because we know its original meaning, but we also see it new meaning. And in particular, it gets our goat because it's the opposite meaning. It's used as where it's not actually literal, it's figurative. And that really annoys us. But to that, I would say many, many words that we use today are the opposite in the meaning they originally had. A great example is the word hardly. Just think for a minute about the root of that word. When you say, I hardly bother anymore, that means you don't really do it. It's not a big deal. It's hardly there. But hard meant with great vigorously or with a lot of effort. We still have the root in our word. We still say hard, meaning difficult. But when we say something was hardly a bother, it means it wasn't much of a bother. So that's a word that originally meant vigorously or with great difficulty. And until about the 16th century, it carried that meaning. And now it means the opposite of that. 
Or another word is silly. Silly actually meant happy or innocent in, in modern, I'm sorry, Middle English. And gradually, because of associations with happiness and innocence that were kind of met, well, maybe you're sort of vacuous and empty-headed when you feel that way, it started to take on this meaning of ridiculousness. Again, quite opposite of its root, which was actually a Germanic word for happy. So those things don't bother us because we're not alive to see them. Literally bothers us because the switch in meaning is happening during our lifetime. Let's take another break. We'll come back to our final segment with Valerie Friedland. Uh, the book is Like Literally Dude. Subtitle is Arguing for the Good in Bad English. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We have about six or seven minutes left in this uh, discussion. And we have with us Valerie Friedland, author most recently of Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Valerie Friedland, I want to talk about vocal fry next. Uh, and... Uh, we have to do this. Uh, public radio is the, is the proud home of vocal fry, I think. Um, <laughs> so uh, I want to introduce this uh, with another uh, video segment. This is Saturday Night Live's parody or spoof of the popular uh, podcast Serial. And so here's Cecily Strong. It, it's not a classic example of vocal fry, but it gets us in that kind of that general area. rotation of the planets, electricity, gravity. Because we only see the results and not the process, should we come to the conclusion that it doesn't exist? I'm Sarah Koenig. On December 25th, 1999, a small boy awoke in Baltimore, Maryland. He went down to his living room and found a Nerf N-Strike Mega Magnus Blaster. It's a mouthful, I know. That's the toy he wanted. The toy had no tag, no receipt. It was as if it appeared out of thin air. The boy maintained the toy had been brought by magic, by a mysterious man named Chris. But I had to ask myself, could Chris really have done this? So there's just a little portion. Then uh, this is a serial, the the Christmas surprise. That's a spoof from Saturday Night Live. So uh, Valerie Friedland, we we heard a little bit of vocal fry in there. Uh, explain what vocal fry is to those who don't know. Sure, and if you listen to that clip, you could hear sometimes her voice dropped a little low and it had kind of a scratchy or um, gravelly sound to it, and that's essentially what we hear as vocal fry. Vocal fry is just a different phonation type, we call it linguistics, which simply means it depends on the way you're holding your vocal folds, and when you have heavier, thicker vocal folds, you're, um, you have a, a slower, more erratic pitch, and, and when you do vocal fry, you're kind of bunching your vocal folds up. Obviously, unconsciously, you're not aware you're doing this, but it, to affect this kind of gravelly, scratchy sound, and it only happens when your voice is already at a low pitch, and often when you get to the end of a sentence, um, as the airflow gets less, and, and so the vibration becomes a little more erratic, and what we hear that as is that scratchy kind of sound, and it's become a new feature of of young women's speech in, in English, mainly for effect, mainly to bring in the sort of more intimate, chill, relaxed kind of tone into the voice. Well, there's much more in the book. We're, we're at the end of our time here. It's uh, flown by. Uh, wonderful to discuss this. Uh, check out the book, uh, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. The author is Valerie Friedland. She's a professor of linguistics in the English department at University of Adorino and writes a popular language blog on psychology today called uh, Language in the Wild. Professor Friedland, thank you so much. 
Absolutely, Tom. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, and thank uh, everyone. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. African Americans living and traveling through Utah in the early 20th century had to delicately navigate the increasing power of the Ku Klux Klan, which contributed to an acceptance of racially motivated violence. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Black people have lived and worked in Utah as trappers, cowboys, and farmers long before statehood. But the arrival of the railroad changed the racial makeup of Utah's communities at the turn of the 20th century. In urban areas such as Ogden, black workers in the growing hospitality, entertainment, and railroad industries coalesced into tight-knit communities. But in more rural parts of Utah, black workers and their families often faced increased discrimination and persecution threats that were compounded by relative isolation. Officially incorporated in Utah in 1921, the Ku Klux Klan, known as the KKK, terrorized rural and ethnically diverse places like Carbon County. Klan members sometimes targeted Catholic and immigrant workers with crosses set ablaze on their front lawns, and the KKK controlled several businesses and government positions. When Jim Crow laws and segregation were the norm across America, Some Utah communities used racial clauses in housing covenants and other ordinances to restrict where black people could go. In some rural towns, vigilante justice in the form of lynching and other extrajudicial violence loomed as a possibility for black residents, especially for a black man accused of a crime. The last lynching of the American West is sometimes attributed to Price, Utah, when a black miner named Robert Marshall was hanged in front of a mob of a thousand spectators after being accused of shooting a white guard in 1925. After Marshall's murder, authorities charged and jailed 11 men with known connections to the Klan, but the men never went to trial. The local newspaper, The Sun, wrote, quote, All is well that ends well. The general sentiment of the folks of Carbon County is that even were the men under accusation the actual perpetrators of the lynching, There was little to be gained by carrying the matter to a point where they could be severely dealt with, unquote. It was Utah's anti-mask laws, which prohibited masks during public demonstrations, that helped halt the growth of the secretive Klan. But the context that allowed the KKK to exist, hate and intolerance, is an uncomfortable legacy that still challenges our hopes for more inclusive communities. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.